May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 12, and we will find our sermon text there in just a moment. At the beginning of last week, as I was reflecting on this text and trying to come up with some way to title the sermon, my initial thought was to call it Troubled with the Truth. But as the week went on, and I found that Sunday was drawing closer, I decided that I should call this sermon, Time is Running Out. And both of those titles actually come out of the text. They come out of the uh, story that we're going to see today. And both both of them were applicable to what I was experiencing as I wrestled through this text. I personally was having trouble with the truth, and then I was realizing that time is running out. Well, the thing we're going to see in this text today is that the theme and the tone of the story has a lot to do with time and timing. In the context of John's Gospel, Jesus has made His triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. We saw that last week. And you remember that crowds cheered and critics jeered, and then Christ veered right into the heart of the fray of all of the controversy. And one of the things that we began to sense last week that we will hopefully really feel this week is that time was running out, not only for Jesus, but also for the world and for the devil. So everyone in this story is starting to feel pressure, pressed for time. And you can get a sense of panic and stress and frenzy as you make your way through this story. Well, as you recall throughout John's Gospel, the clock has been ticking, so to speak. Jesus has said on at least two other occasions, the hour is coming when something will happen. Either worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, or when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. But in both places, He's saying the hour is coming. It's yet future. But in this story today, He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then we see this use of a very small but significant word, the word now. It is, in fact, one of the most important words in this story. Now. It's as if the time has come to unveil the mystery of all mysteries, and Jesus turns to the crowd and says, And now, without further ado, the crisis of the world and the casting out of its ruler at the cross of Christ will occur. Now that the hour has come, everything that is sad will come untrue. Our sermon text for today is John 12, 27 to 36. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand and give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. God's word says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. 
Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? When Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word in all the church says. You may be seated. Now to keep things very simple this evening, there are five things in the story that I want to highlight. Five things that point us to Jesus and help us to center our thoughts, our feelings, and our lives on Jesus. And the five things are these. A troubled soul, a thunderous voice, a deposed ruler, a hanging tree, and a shining light. And I want us to walk through the text and look at these things one at a time. The first one is a troubled soul. Verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And the word troubled here simply means that his soul is stirred, that it's moved. We found this word earlier in a story where we saw water was being stirred up. Or when Jesus' spirit was greatly troubled, it was stirred up over the death of a friend. The word soul means life. And so Jesus is acknowledging to people around him that his life is stirred up. And why is that? Because the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now we hear the notion of glorification and we might think, that's exciting. Now is the time for Jesus to be exalted and lifted up and praised. And yet for Jesus... This was an excruciating thing. For Jesus to be glorified meant that He must be humiliated, tortured, and crucified. It meant that He must suffer and die all alone. And so we begin to sense the paradox of the gospel that the way up is down. To go high, you must get low. That glory comes through shame and power comes through weakness. That life comes through death. Like a grain of wheat, Jesus must fall to the earth and die that He might bear much fruit for the life of the world. His soul is troubled because of what He is about to experience. Because of what He is about to encounter. Now in this phrase, my soul is troubled, you can hear echoes of some of the Psalms coming through. In Psalm 6, for example, a psalmist said, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. Jesus too said, my soul is troubled. But notice that unlike the psalmist who went on to say, 
Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In contrast to that, Jesus said, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question. No. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now think about this hour. This is the hour that Jesus has dreamed about and perhaps even dreaded all His life. And it has come at last. This is the hour of His death on the cross. The destruction of His enemy. The death of sin and death and the deliverance of His people. The hour of glory by shame and victory by defeat. Jesus does not wish to be delivered from this hour. He simply wants His Father to be praised through His experience of the hour. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to escape toil and trouble. He wants to enter into it for the glory of God and for the good of the world. And I would suggest to you that it is this attitude and this approach to life, even this approach to death, that sets Jesus apart from everyone else, including you, including me. Now, in hearing that, you might think, well, there's no way I could identify with Jesus or relate to Jesus because He's so different than I am. But can I suggest to you that if you came here tonight and your soul is troubled or your soul is in turmoil for some reason, whatever that might be, that in that way you relate to Jesus and He relates to you and you have something in common, the turmoil and trouble of your soul. And whether you respond as the psalmist did, deliver me, save me, or as Jesus did, Father, glorify your name. What matters is that you are crying out to God the way the psalmist and the way Christ did. And I want to counsel you to continue to do that. To put your hope in God that you shall praise Him again. To put your hope in God that the salvation of your face and your God may ever be before you. Just as Jesus' troubled soul moved Him to cry out to His Father in prayer, it is my hope and prayer that your troubles, that your turmoil will move you to cry out in prayer to God and that you will wait in hope for an answer from Him, a reply from Him, a reply that will come to you in the form of Jesus Christ and His good news. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to see this evening. A thunderous voice. What a strange thing to see in a story like this. Jesus has prayed, Father, glorify Your name, which basically comes down to, Father, praise Your name. And the Father says, I have praised my name and I will praise it again. We might ask, well, when did he do that and how has he done that? And if you go back through the Gospel of John, you will see that God has done this on many occasions. The Father has glorified and praised his divine name through the life and the times and the signs of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. 
From the incarnation up to the crucifixion, the Father has praised and glorified His name. And then from the crucifixion to the resurrection and beyond, the Father will continue to praise and glorify His name. And so He answers Jesus' prayer directly to Jesus. In our confession of faith, we say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And yet we know that no one has ever reached that goal or, for, or fulfilled that duty perfectly except for the Lord Jesus Christ. In our own lives, we strive to do that as we stumble towards eternity. But Jesus Christ alone glorified God and enjoys Him forever in ways that we cannot even imagine. The Father is seeking people who will do such things and in Christ, he, find, he finds that very kind of person. A true worshiper who praises and glorifies God in body and in soul. Now back to our story. When the Father answers Jesus' prayer, Jesus understands clearly what the Father has said. But notice that the crowd who stood there heard it and they had various responses. There's one sound, there's one voice, and yet a variety of responses. Some say it thundered, others say, no, an angel spoke. So I want you to keep in mind that what's happening here is the crowd is misunderstanding and mistaken, mistaking the voice of God for noise. For noise. Now there are a couple of ways to understand this. You could look at it theologically and explore all the reasons why some people understand the voice of God and other people don't. But I think Jesus takes it more pastorally and I want to focus our attention on that. Notice that Jesus says in the story, this voice was for your sake, not for mine. Now God the Father was speaking to Jesus, but Jesus said, this wasn't for me, it was for you. And He's not critical of the people for identifying the voice of God as thunder or as an angel voice. He simply wants them to understand that God has spoken, that God has responded. I want to suggest to you that Jesus did not need to hear the Father speak to Him audibly with a thunderous voice, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need to hear the voice of God speaking to us even out of a sermon through a preacher who is thundering the Word of God. I'll take you back to a well-known story in the book of Job where one of Job's friends, Elihu, speaks to Job. And I want you to capture what he says, specifically what he says about thunder. Job's friend Elihu says to Job, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumble that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. And after it his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. God's voice thunders and often we cannot comprehend it. 
And still God speaks to us, even out of a sermon. But sometimes in life, God speaks to us beyond the sermon. He speaks to us out of the storms of life. And sometimes we need to hear the voice of God speaking to us, even out of the storms of life, to remind us that God is sovereign over all things, even the whirlwind, and that we must repent of our sins, whatever they are, for we are but dust and ashes. And that brings us to the third thing I want you to see. A deposed ruler. Jesus says in verse 31, Now is the time of the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now the word judgment comes from a Greek word that sounds like crisis. And our English word crisis comes from that word. The ruler of this world is the devil, the prince of darkness, the God of this age. And so Jesus is declaring to the crowd, to the people around Him, that this is a crisis moment. What is the crisis? The crisis is that we're about to experience a change of authority, a change of power. There's going to be a regime change. And that is a crisis moment for the world. On one hand, the judgment of this world will fall on Jesus. And Jesus will confront the ruler of this world and cast him out. Jesus will be arrested and tried and mocked, scourged and crucified as a heretic and as a revolutionary. But he will confront the ruler of this world at the cross. All in the same event. As the world judges Jesus, Jesus in turn judges the prince of this world. When will this happen? Jesus says, now. It will happen now. After all this time, after all these years, after millennia of struggle and waiting and wondering where is God, now the crisis of the world and the casting out of its ruler occur simultaneously in one fell swoop at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what the world intended for evil, God intended for good, so that many people might be saved, not in spite of the evil, mind you, but because of all the good that God will accomplish through the evil. If we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And the most crooked stick there ever was, was the cross of Jesus Christ. And God draws straight lines with those crooked sticks. In this story, we learn that Jesus says, now the judgment of the world has come. Now the ruler of the world is cast out. Jesus is declaring to us His mission and purpose is to destroy the devil and His works. And that brings us to really the heart of the message tonight, which is the hanging tree. The hanging tree. This is the other thing that points us to Jesus. In verses 31 to 34, we learn that the showdown between Christ and the devil will happen at a crooked tree. And it will happen on a skull-shaped rock. The whole story centers on the cross. And that is why Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. And then John adds, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
Now in the grand scheme of things, the phrase lifted up could mean that crucified on the cross. It could also mean resurrected from the dead. It could even mean ascended up into heaven. And yet John narrows the scope for us by saying, no, the reference here is to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. It is at the cross where all of these things will take place. Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And later Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I do nothing on my own authority. Now Jesus is talking about the kind of death He was going to die. All of this talk about the grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. All of this talk about people hating their life and living forever in Christ and following Him into darkness. All of this comes to clear vision, clear view when we see that Jesus is referring to the cross. Jesus knew the doctrine. He understood the discipline. He, under knew, he, he knew the drill when I'm lifted up from the earth, when I am suspended on the cross between heaven and hell. It is from that place that I will draw all to myself. Now I want to point out here that if you're reading an English translation, you see the phrase people, all people. And the word people doesn't actually exist. It's not in the Greek text. And while it's great to think of Jesus drawing all people to Himself, what Jesus is actually saying is even bigger and better than that. He's not just talking about drawing Jew and Gentile to Himself, although He is doing that. He is talking about drawing all things to Himself. That Jesus Christ crucified will become the gravitational center of all things. And so as He draws Jew and Gentile to Himself, He is also drawing creation to Himself. He's drawing all things to Himself for the purpose of redeeming and renewing them. Imagine the scene taking place as Jesus speaks these truths and these realities. You have a crowd that has gathered to celebrate Holy Week. This is all happening on their Palm Sunday. And as Jesus is saying these things, the attitude begins to change in the crowd. In other words, one mention of the cross and the crowd is stunned. The enthusiasm fades. The cheers begin to die down. Palm branches cease to wave. One mention of the cross and political hopes are shattered and revolutionary zeal is quenched. Why? Because the crowd realizes that the man that they have declared to be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, has just announced that he believes that he will be lifted up on the cross in the near future, which means that he believes that the Romans are going to kill him. He believes that he is going to be crucified as an enemy of the state. And so in response to what Jesus is saying about the cross and about being lifted up, the crowds say, time out. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? We know what the Bible says. And the Bible says that the, the Christ will live forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They understood what lifted up meant. They understood that lifted up meant crucified and cursed and condemned. 
But they knew the Scriptures, they say. And the Scriptures say the Christ will abide forever. So the notion of a Christ crucified just did not register with them. It didn't seem to fit or go together. I want to suggest to you that many in the contemporary church feel the same way. And many in the world outside the church feel the same way about the cross. To many people, the cross is a buzzkill. It is a downer. It is a cone of shame. It is a death machine. The cross is a scandal. It is a stumbling block. It removes all of our comforts, all of our securities. It makes us feel very uh, uncomfortable and vulnerable. And yet, from Jesus' point of view, the cross is necessary because it is the means of salvation. It is a suspension bridge between life and death. It is a stairway from hell to heaven. It is the altar of sacrifice and service established by God. Now I want you to know the crowd was not entirely wrong. They were actually partially right. The Scriptures do say that the Christ will abide forever. But that is not all the Scriptures say about the Christ. The part they're overlooking is the part that says the Christ will be lifted up. You heard this in the Scripture reading before the sermon, but I'll repeat a portion of this text to you now from Isaiah 52, where God, speaking through the prophet, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they will see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. Jesus says, now, now, at this hour, all these things are about to be fulfilled. And that is why the Son of Man must be lifted up. Little side note here. The crowd is asking Jesus all of these questions. And you expect Jesus to answer all of the questions. And when they get down to, who is the Son of Man anyway? You notice in the text that Jesus doesn't answer the question. And it would have been easy for Him to do so. I mean, He could have said, you read about the Son of Man in Psalm 8. Or you read about the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Or you could read about the Son of Man 80-something times in the book of Ezekiel. Go there and you'll find out about the Son of Man. And yet He offers them no theological explanation, no book, chapter, or verse. Instead, He gives them a simple yet urgent exhortation to walk in the light. Why is that? It's because time is up. The hour is here and the time for debate and discussion is over. And now there are more pressing and urgent things to tackle. And that brings us to this last point, a shining light. Look at verses 35 and 36. Here Jesus says to a crowd who still has many questions, and perhaps using the questions as smokescreen to not have to actually deal with the reality of whether they will follow Jesus or not, or to deal with the the certain reality of the crucifixion of Jesus. Maybe they're just trying to avoid the cross. So they ask a barrage of questions. Jesus' response is, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have that light. 
lest darkness overtake you. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has said of Himself, others have said of Him, that He is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And now He is telling us that He is the one who is about to enter into the upside down. A dark echo and dim reflection of our world. He is about to enter enter in through the gate and pass into the veil of shadows. This place of decay and death, a plane out of phase. And it is there in the dreadful darkness and in the dust of death that Jesus will confront the monster and He will crush its head once and for all. Jesus is the light of the world, but that light is about to go away. It's about to go to a place where it cannot be seen for a while. And so he says, walk in the light while you have the light. In other words, seize the day. Make the most of every opportunity. Live your life to the fullest, not the way you wish to live, but the way Christ is calling you to live. Take advantage of the light while you have it. Now, to walk in the light, I want to explain this a bit to you because sometimes we get confused in our imagination. We think maybe to walk in the light means that there is a beam shining down from heaven and we've got to go find a way to get in that beam of light and follow it around wherever it leads. That that's the goal and purpose of life is to try to stay in that light while God plays tricks with us and moves it around. But that's not at all what Jesus has in mind when He says walk in the light. He doesn't say, find the tractor beam and stay in that tractor beam. To walk in the light means that you walk by faith in Jesus Christ and that you live in union and communion with Christ. It means that whatever time you have left in this world and in your life, you use that time to trust and obey Jesus, to follow Jesus out of darkness and death into light and into life. Now it appears that we're in the light because we've gathered for worship in the presence of God and with God's people. And I hope and pray that you are walking in the light and that the light of Christ has illumined your heart and your mind. But it is possible that some of us have come in here tonight and we are still gripped in death, that we are still shrouded in darkness. It is possible that some of us are yet walking in darkness, perhaps trying to find our way to the light. And if that describes you, let me say to you that there is good news and hope for you. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. And Jesus is simply echoing the prophet Isaiah. But Isaiah says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light... Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. Why? Well, to put it in Jesus' words, because to believe in the light is to become like the light. To believe in the light is to become like the light. Only a legalist, only a moralist would get that the other way around. And so many of us struggle with that, where we think, if I could just clean up my life, if I could just get things in order, if I could become like light, then I could believe in the light. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Come into the light with all of your darkness. Come into the light with all of your brokenness. Come into the light that you may become sons of light. In other words, come into the light, trusting in Christ 
And God will do the work of cleansing you, of scattering the darkness, of driving out death and fear from your life. So if you're in the darkness, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your hearts on Jesus. And He will light your way. Well, we've looked at five things that point us to Jesus that help us center on Him. A troubled soul, a thunderous voice, a deposed ruler, a hanging tree, and a shining light. And that brings us to one last thing that I want to mention here. Look at verse 37. When Jesus said these things, He departed and hid Himself. That seems like such a strange thing for Jesus to do in light of all that He has said about the crisis of the time, about the need to walk in the light while we still have it. And yet, the the incarnate Word encrypted Himself. He became a hidden Word, a secret message. I wonder how many of you feel like Jesus has done this kind of thing to you. Maybe you feel like He's gone away and He's hidden Himself from you. You feel like maybe He's spoken His Word, dropped the mic, walked off stage, turned off the lights. I've felt that way on more than one occasion. Perhaps you'd have as well. Maybe you feel like the Lord has abandoned you. He's he's mentioned all of these great truths and made these promises and claims And yet the minute you turn towards Him, He's gone. He's hidden. He's vanished out of sight. I want to encourage you that that is probably not the case. There is a method to the madness of what's happening in this story. What's actually happening in this story is not so much about what Jesus is doing to you, but it's about what Jesus was doing to the people in that time. And what's happening there is His departing and His hiding were signs of God's judgment against His covenant people. Throughout the Old Testament, the law and the prophets used this graphic imagery of God departing and hiding from His people as a judgment figure. Repeatedly, God says in Deuteronomy, I will forsake them and hide my face from them. I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. The prophets say, There is no one who calls upon your name, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The prophets also say that the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their sin because they dealt so treacherously with God that God hid His face from them. And so when Jesus turns and departs from that crowd, He is in fact saying to them, I reject your claims on me. I'm not going to be your king to drive out the Romans. I'm not going to be your champion to fight your wars. You're not going to elect me and make me hold some office for you. He departs and hides from them. Because judgment is coming upon them. In the Old Testament, when the Lord is seeking you, you are blessed, for He will find you. But if the Lord hides from you, you are cursed For He cannot be found by you or by me unless He reveals Himself to us. Remember the high priestly benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. What is Jesus doing? He's reversing that benediction. 
And instead of blessing, there will be curse for a people who have rejected Him, who are plotting to kill Him, who are trying to rid the earth of Him. Now, in contrast to those people, I know we feel a little differently. Sometimes we feel like we are stuck playing this sort of never-ending, high-stakes game of cosmic hide-and-seek. And we think that we are seeking God, but He's hiding from us, and we can't find Him. We feel like He is far away and not nearby. Sometimes that is the case, but it's not always the case. Sometimes it's not God at all who has hidden, but us. That we are the ones who have turned and hidden from Him. And let's remember as we look at the big story of Scripture, that we are the ones who started this game. That we and our fathers are the ones who hid from God first. And it was God who came looking for us. It was God who came calling us. It was God who came searching for us even in the midst of our sin. What has Jesus been doing throughout the entire Gospel of John up to this point? He has come into the world, Word made flesh. He's on a mission to seek and save the lost. And everywhere He's gone, among men and women and children and Jews and Samaritans and Greeks, among legalists and libertines, everywhere He's gone, He has preached the grace and truth of God. He has revealed the glories of God to people everywhere He's gone. And on this week leading up to the cross, He turns His back on a people who have repeatedly rejected Him, repeatedly abandoned Him, repeatedly pushed Him to the margins. Don't let that be true in your life. Don't be like those people who praised Him with their lips and yet their hearts were far from Him. I want to end this sermon this evening with a few words from A.W. Tozer that I think are fitting a fitting way to tie up the things that we have seen this evening. A.W. Tozer says, What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the last day. It would be better to invite God now to remove every false trust, to disengage our hearts from all secret hiding places, and to bring us out into the open where we can discover for ourselves whether or not we actually trust Him. That is a harsh cure for our troubles, but it is a sure one. Gentler cures may be too weak to do the work. And time is running out on us. I take you back to the word now. Now. Now is the time for you to put your trust in Christ. If you've never done so, now is the time for you to put your trust in Christ. If you think you've already done so, now is the time for you to put your trust in Christ. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Follow Him, even into suffering, even to the cross, even down into the grave, and back out again into light and life. Now is the time of salvation. Not tomorrow, not later, 
but right now.